best entrepreneurs in the world get told no over and over and over again. I didn't know how I was going to make it work, but I was damn determined I was going to make it work. Not realizing how much better television was going to make me at my job. I thought all you needed was the idea and then you were rich. Welcome to the Blue Collar Business School Podcast. Welcome back to the Blue Collar Business School Podcast. My name is, of course, Julian Clayton, and I want to thank everybody for their continued support, both here at the podcast and over on the website at www.bluecollar.business. I want to try something a little different this week and actually talk a little bit more about what we're doing over at the site and uh, how things are starting to come together. You know, as you know, we release a little bit of the content we intend to put in the book every single week in our free newsletter and also on the website. Uh, you simply have to register to see it. There is no uh, payment. We're not charging anybody for any of this content uh, here on the podcast. There's not even any ads at this point. But this week's subject was an interesting one. It was really about what you don't need to get started, whether it's a new business or a new project, so many of us fall into that trap of thinking that we have to have everything perfect, that we have to have all the pieces in place before we can even start our business or launch that project, and that just isn't the case. And that's what the subject of this week's post was, and after we had it all ready to post and it was just kind of waiting in the queue, the night before it was released, I actually got a phone call from a friend of mine who is getting ready to start a new business or is in the process of starting his new business and had already fallen into that trap. Hasn't even got finished with the business plan yet and is already worried about where he's going to get investment or should he go for bank loans and what's the perfect office set up and where should he be based and all these things. And it's just not necessary to be in that conversation with yourself right now. I mean, as we talk through it, I... I fell back to a place that I've, I've had to be in in many of these talks, which was just build that business plan and then let's sit down together and pick it apart and take out all the things that we don't need. We don't need to buy $50,000 worth of equipment when we've only booked one job. It makes much more sense to uh, you know spend a thousand or a couple thousand bucks on a rental. Uh, I mean, heck, you don't even need bank accounts if you're not invoicing anybody yet. What do you, where, why do you need a place to store your money if you've got none coming in? Uh, you know, obviously a small piece. But that's what this week's post is about. And if you're interested in learning more, jump over to bluecollar.business and take a look at that and many of the other subjects uh, that we talk about each and every week. But this is the podcast, as we say. And this week's guest is uh, a very close friend of mine that my children refer to as Uncle Brian. I've known Brian longer than I've had my kids. Uh, we've been friends for well over 20 years at this point. And Brian, when I met him, was a firefighter. And today, he is no longer with the fire department. Um, he's raising two teenage boys, and he is one of the most successful barbers that I have uh, ever come in contact with. And the way he runs his shop and the way he kind of came to terms with uh, the culture that he wanted to create in his shop was is a pretty special story, and I think you're going to enjoy this. Um, once again, you'll recognize that this is one of the uh, podcasts that we are doing from Salisbury, North Carolina, and I'll go ahead and say 
before you get to this point, that this podcast references a little bit of a dark time in Salisbury's history where there was some severe gang violence and uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of tension in the community. And Brian's shop uh, went a long way towards uh, t- towards getting rid of a lot of that tension and bringing some people together. And I'm pretty proud to call him my friend as a result. But uh, let's let Brian tell his story. I started on the job at the fire department in 2000, March 8, 2000. And I did a couple years before that in EMS. And before that, man, I was just a, I worked factories and I did enough of that stuff to realize I didn't want to work in a factory my whole life. So I got into emergency services because it was always different. And it's one of those things when I started, I was like, this is my thing. Yeah, just ate it up and loved it and started with the fire department and it was one of those things like it was the best job I ever had in my life and with the fire service I tell people it's the best job in the world till it's not and when it makes that turn it's it's really it can be a rough job it can be your schedule the things that you encounter, the things you see, they can build on you. And if you're not, if you don't take care of those things in your own mind, they can sneak up on you pretty quickly. And I was on the job for 14 years. Really, to be honest, I should have left a few years prior to that just because I was burnt out. If I was in the station, I hated being there. If we were running calls, I hated it. It was just, I needed a change and I got separated, had two kids. I was lucky enough that my ex-wife was also a firefighter and she helped me a lot with the schedule because I worked 24 hours on, 48 hours off. And when we were trying to figure out what we were going to do about the kids, she was like, Brian, you can't have them your first day off because you don't sleep for 24 hours at a time. So I needed a whole day to recover. Then my third, my second day off, I would actually get to have my kids. So I only had my kids 10 days a month, which was, I didn't really care that much for that. And being single and being, you know, a single dad working that schedule, it just started to really build and build and build. And I needed to figure out something and I was, had been a barber for years and I did it at a side hustle because every firefighter's got two or three jobs. And I started out just doing it on the side. Well, I'd quit barbering for almost two or three years before I left the job. Like I wasn't cutting hair anywhere, but I still had my license. So I was racking my brain trying to figure out an exit strategy of what I can do. And I was like, well, I decided I'm gonna open a barbershop because there wasn't a chair for me to rent here in town. And I figured out working at other shops, if you want your shop or your business to be what you want it to be, then it needs to be your business. So I just made that, made my mind up, I'm leaving. And 
I'm going to make it work. I didn't know how I was going to make it work, but I was damn determined I was going to make it work. So, and luckily I don't require a whole lot to live. So <laughs> I was able to be pretty cheap for a while. I pulled money from my 401k, put in my notice. I'm leaving the job at this time. And I just, I just jumped. Like I put myself in a position to where failure was not an option because if it went under, then I would lose everything. So I had that mindset that I can't, it has to work. I have to be successful. It's, it's got to do its thing. Talk to me a little bit about what was going through your mind as you were weighing that decision on whether or not to leave the fire department. I remember that weighing pretty heavily on you at the time, but I also think that part of the reason you're so successful today is because you put so much thought into why you needed to make this change in your life. What, what was going through your head back then? It's like a, a good friend of mine as a firefighter. He said, man, every firefighter, every responder is one call away from the end of their career. And me, I was, there's just so much that experiences that I never dealt with and took the time to mentally process that they built up on me to, I was, remember my sons, we were in the grocery store one day and Avery was like, I think six or seven, like he was small enough that he could fit in the front part of the shopping cart. And I'm pushing this joker around, I'm in the grocery store and I didn't realize it, but I am white knuckle gripping the shopping cart gritting my teeth like my jaw was hurting and Avery kept saying dad daddy daddy and I just flipped and I was like son what do you want and he looked at me in his sweet little kind eyes and said dad you got your mad face on are you okay and at that moment it was like a switch like I've got to get off this damn job because I'm walking around like this and I'm putting my kids on edge and they were like, he was nervous. He was unsure. He's like, dude, what's wrong? What's, what's going on, man? And I couldn't, there was, I'm in the grocery store on a Tuesday. There was nothing wrong, but just, you know, I won't get into everything that come, but emotionally the job had put me in a bad place. Sure. And I just needed to do something else. I just, my heart wasn't in it. And it's one of those jobs to where, you're either 100% in or 100% out. And I was not 100% in. And with that mind state, I owed it to the people who called for my help and to my brothers on the truck that were with me. I needed to leave because I wasn't 100% in. Talk a little bit about the lead up. Like you, it was a big jump. Like you said, you didn't have a plan B. And that was, that was kind of part of the point. So you didn't fall back on that. But what what types of things did you do to set yourself up to, you know, for as soft a landing as you could possibly have when you made that jump? I just I went through I didn't have much many bills. I didn't have a car payment at the time. You know, the apartment I was staying in was, you know, relatively inexpensive. But I just went through my numbers, figured up what I needed to live. And then I figured up, you know, the money that I had kind of made a guesstimate of what I would need to float me until the business started 
you know, at least paying for Excel. And I was really lucky. A friend of mine turned me on to a space that was really cheap and really manageable, uh, low overhead to start with. That was the biggest thing, like starting out my first business lesson that I remembered was controlling your overhead because I looked at other businesses and had other people that were really, you know, that had businesses and they kind of controlled their overhead. It's like, yeah, if my overhead is a lot, then the business has to do really well versus if I can control my overhead and keep my overhead small, the business doesn't, it can, it makes it easier to weather those, those slow times when you're getting started out or freaking global pandemics that come around. If you can, <laughs> if you can keep your overhead down, you don't have to always kill it. But if you have a huge overhead, you always have to be, you always have to kill it. And you don't, that's not the case. You're going to get kicked in the teeth sometimes and things are going to come around. And that was always my mindset and not, Plus, not coming from a business background, you know, I'm just kind of took the idiot's approach to it. It's like, I like to deal with little numbers, right? Because I don't <laughs> need much to survive myself. So let's start small. Let's do this thing as easy and simple, stupid as I can to make it easy for my brain to kind of process and keep up with. And then once I get used to that, then I can start building, you know, and getting bigger by really small increments. That first location you had, it was cheap, but if you're looking back on it, it was cheap for a reason. It wasn't that it was in a bad location. It was kind of a non-location. It was like in between the places that any business would want to be. Like literally on that road, if you would have been a mile east or west, it would have been so much better for you, but that's where you had to start. What kind of things did you do to make up for the fact that the location wasn't exactly where you would have if you had your pick of the place? It wasn't the ideal first location. There's a reason, like you were saying, there's a reason why it was cheap. And it was not, at times, not the best neighborhood. But once I got in the shop, I took away any excuse I had. Because honestly, when I worked in other shops, for other people and just ran the chair, I would make excuses why I wasn't successful. When I opened my own business, I was like, all right, Brian, you have zero excuses. Yeah, you're not in the best location, but you're still on a main thoroughfare. Make it work. And so that's what I did. And the way I did it was, if I left the house, I had a handful of cards to justify, when I didn't have the boys, to justify going out for a beer, if I walked in a bar or a restaurant to have a beer, I had to hand out five cards. And I would tell people where I was at and strike up, do that elevator speech over and over and over again. One thing I did is a buddy of mine had a cigar shop at the time. I packed up a chair, a station, the whole nine, and set up in this cigar room and did haircuts and shaves for one of their events. And when people sit down, I would get their name and email and I'd hand them a card and I actually had flyers of the shop and kind of sold myself that way and had gave people a taste of what the shop was like without them ever coming just to get them in the door and to let them know where I was at 
because if your location is not going to bring people to you, then you got to go bring people to your location was the mindset that I had. I was in that first shop for a little bit over a year, almost a year and a half. And I was, I was picking up traction and getting steadier. And I was, I was paying my bills and had money left over occasionally to go out to eat. And that was, to me, that was success. It was after a year and a half, the guy that owned the building sold the building to this lady that was starting some type of outreach center. It was described as the building. It was kind of like a, a row of uh, businesses and she bought the whole building and mine was just right there in the middle. And when she kind of taken over things, I realized just from my little bit of dealings with her that I wasn't really crazy about being in business with her and how she was kind of operating things. Instead of waiting till, till it came to a head with that, I decided I needed to make a move just to assure the stability of the business. One of the many lessons I learned from being a firefighter is don't wait till things get bad till you start putting things in place to fix it. Because chances are, if you wait till it goes to hell in a handbasket, you're too late. Before things kind of got bad with that situation, I started seeing what was out there and found a location downtown, a half block off the square. It was reasonable. And with the growth that I had in that first year, it was absolutely feasible to move into this space and take on that next step. It was a lot bigger space, a lot better location, more overhead, but it was a good, the timing was there, even though I didn't realize it at the time. It, the timing was there for me to take on that next thing because where I was at was easy and comfortable. This next spot was just that next step and not something I'm quite as comfortable with, but very doable. And then something kind of happened in town and I, you know, I don't know whether you're willing to take credit for it, but I would certainly give you the credit is, you know, one thing I remember from being in that town years ago is there were definitely kind of racial and cultural divides as far as barbershops and hair salons. And then, you know, you say the timing worked out for you, but that's part of the thing that was working out for you is that your shop was kind of, you know, eliminating those divides and bringing everybody in. And some of those other businesses just kind of went away. And, you know, you attracted a, what I would describe as, a, a more modern way of thinking, especially in the South where, you know, your shop was everybody's shop and you, you had the skills to cut everybody's hair, but also you had the personality and the, and the business acumen to, to support the entire community as, as opposed to just one, one section of that community. When I first opened the shop and like I was going back to my point about, if you won't, the business to be the way you want it. It has to be your business. Well, getting into barbering, I rented a chair from a 100% Black-owned shop. The clientele was almost 100% African-American. And then I rented a chair from more of a traditional white shop. And it's weird here in the South, it's like barbershops, funeral homes, and churches are all still like separate. And I hated that because, oh, I just didn't get it. And being a firefighter, working with people from 
all backgrounds. Where I went to barber school, I made sure I learned to cut black hair because my brother that got me into from the fire service, uh, James Johnson, who got me into barbering, he, he was a black dude that had a barber shop. And he's like, man, you need to learn to cut everybody's hair because that's going to help get more. That's going to help your chair stay full. And I just didn't. I just hated that you couldn't go. I wanted a barbershop to be for what it was supposed to be. It's where everybody is somebody in a barbershop. You're a doctor, construction worker, it don't matter. And I made sure when I opened my shop, everyone was gonna be feel welcome. I don't care what background you have. You come in here, you're gonna be treated like somebody. And the first barber I had to come wanna rent a chair for me was uh, Tim Batten. And he, he was a black guy and I'd known for years that just need a spot to work. And so when people would come in, like a lot of my customers that were used to going to white owned shops and he would come in and he's talking football and we're all like, like, man, this is pretty cool. I was like, yeah. And we kind of got that going and like he brought in his clientele and it was neat seeing people kind of come around when, and especially when they'd come in and a white guy would be in his chair and a black guy would be in my chair and they'd kind of look look at it strange like what we're barbers if you're a barber you should be able to cut hair i mean any hair and we had the same mindset together that we expect our community to support us and you want to call yourself a community barbershop you damn well better be able to reach out and support your community when it needed to be we were always trying to figure out ways to get out there and do things because a couple years ago, man, and still Salisbury had, you know, put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. There was a lot of bad stories coming out about Salisbury and the, we wanted to do our part to go, all right, we're doing business here. What can we do to change that? Unfortunately, a few years ago, we had a, um, a young girl that was uh, shot and killed. Me and uh, Tim got together and kind of racked our brains about, you know what, we need to do something. And it was cool because I dropped my son off at daycare, my youngest, and I watched him go into daycare and it just like hit, it's like, man, that could have been my son. Got to the shop, walked in, and I could tell Tim just had something on his mind. He, he was carrying around some weight. And I said, Blade, I just dropped Addy off from school and I got thinking about, um, little girl that just got killed and I was like we need to do something and uh he said B I'm glad you said something I didn't sleep last night because he has a daughter and uh we put together a little fundraiser and it was amazing the amount of support of people who come out people come in we did we start collecting money at the shop and we did like one big night and man we worked our tails off but people would come in give us hugs some people come in crying um, it was really it was one of the coolest things i've got to be a part of and just the fact that we were able to go to other other barbershops called us and go hey man we got some money for you not to kind of rehash the past but just to kind of give some more background on that time that was a rough time for, you know, I'd say better part of a year for Salisbury. And I remember 
yeah, I remember coming down and, and witnessing it for myself. And I remember meeting you for a beer one night and, you know, showing up into town and just like I always do going, just catching up with old friends and every place was empty, you know, Friday night, nine o'clock, I walked past three empty restaurants to sit down at a bar with you. And it was me, you, and one other dude sitting at that bar because everybody was terrified to go outside at night. It was, yeah. uh, it, 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 you know, and that's, that was a rough, that was a rough time for Salisbury, but also it kind of let the community that brought it back together shine through that. And, uh, it made it real clear who was contributing to that community at the time. And your, your shop was definitely one of those. You are now one of those businesses downtown that is just part of the community because you're such a positive piece of the community. You've established yourself to where yes, made man, barber and shave is there, but the community knows Brian because Brian has established himself in the community as someone who who gives a damn to a certain degree. That's one reason why the shop doesn't, it's not called Brian's barbershop. A lot of people, they, they may, they know my face, but they know made man, which is by design because I always, in my, when I was naming the shop and my idea about business is Brian's barbershop can only be so much. I would much rather make a business be something more to represent something more than myself. And there's a lot of times people know the shop, but they don't know whether when they walk in, they know I've been there alone, but they'll ask me, man, how long you been working here? And these guys have been in town forever. And I don't, I like that because I feel like, but doing it that way, the brand and the, sh the business can be more than what I could ever make it. By myself one of the key things from business that I remember is come from from you and because you never give business advice so I just listen to you talk and you said man a good business isn't something that you become a slave to and have to be there to turn the wheel and make work a good business is something that you can bust your ass turn it into something and then eventually it will walk to a certain degree on its own. So I tried to keep that in the back of my head as I developed the business. What other things did you learn about that shop? Cause you've tried a lot of things, right? You've, you've put some things in, you've kept some things, you've taken some things out, but you've given your shop its own personality. And, and I wouldn't say it's a personality that, probably would appear in a barbershop in that town. You, you, it's definitely, you've put your own flair on it. Can you talk about some of the, the decisions you made, the things that worked, the things that didn't? When I was doing the construction on the first shop, Moscadini come in, a good friend of ours, whose family's been doing business in this town for a long time. He come in and I swear he looked like a proud older brother looking at the, like the construction mess and everything. Again, he's one of those dudes, he don't give business advice ever. But he looked at me and he said, Brian, this is the only thing I'm ever gonna tell you about business is do what the fuck you wanna do. Everybody's gonna come in here and tell you how to spend your money and how to run your business. Fuck them all, do what the hell you wanna do. 
So that's just what I did. Like the personality of the shop, it's, it's organic. It's just, that's me. That's, it's not something that I like going to figure out a brand and how to, how I want to project it. You know, it's just, it's just me. And a lot of, I have a saying, I try a lot of things that are cool, but I have to figure out a way to make cool, make money. I had a shoe shine guy for a while. I had shoe shine stand and everything, and it was really, really cool, but it just didn't make, it wasn't feasible. It didn't make money. And it just kind of phased out, but I gave it a try and, and seen how it went. It's a matter of see what it takes to try it. You know, that calculated risk and what am I, all right, if I try it and, I'm, and it doesn't work, what am I really out? You know, I initially, when I first started hiring barbers, it was my mindset, more is better. Like having a shop full of barbers and at the West End Street location at one point, I had five barbers in there and it was a lot. And I realized about myself is I couldn't figure out why I wasn't having as much fun as I was. And it wasn't that the barbers I had were bad people or something. It was just me. My personality is I don't really like to manage people. I like, I used to tell people, man, come in, make a whole lot of money, clean up after yourself, go home. I didn't want to manage it. But when you have a big group of personalities like that, you have to manage it. And I just didn't enjoy it. I like, now I have Tim and one other barber in the shop and it's a lot easier and it's a lot more fun. There's less chaos going on throughout the shop and a lot less personalities clashing. That's been the biggest change is when I was shut down for two months, the biggest thing it taught me and when I had time to sit back and reflect on it was, you know, what's the point of working for yourself if your boss is an asshole? I just went back to work and I was like, it's going to be fun. I'm not going to kill myself. And you know what? It's made the shops doing really well. Everyone's getting busier. My mental health is much better. Like I enjoy coming in the shop. And now you've got, I don't, I don't mind saying it. You've got the most diverse uh, barbershop staff <laughs> that I've ever seen in my entire life. But I got to imagine in this day and age, that's working out well for you. And I don't even think that that was a thing you planned for, was it? No, not really. It just happened that way. And with Tim and then with Jazz coming on board, uh, Jazz is a, a Latina bilingual, which helps out a lot. And, and a woman. Yeah. And a woman that you've got working in a men's barbershop. It's been a really good addition to the shop. And we have a similar mindset to where it doesn't matter who comes to that door. And I sit down with every barber that wants to you know, work in the shop. It's like, look, everyone comes in that shop is somebody. And I take a lot of pride in the fact that black, white, straight, gay, transgender, everyone feels welcome in my shop. I've had people pull me aside. They say, man, I'm so grateful that you have this shop because there's nowhere else I can go and be comfortable. I don't want to go, you know, was, you're especially members of the gay community in town that would go to a barber shop and they would hear the, you know, the negative Southern backwoods shit that you hear in town, but they love the traditional barbershop feel 
without the racism <laughs> you know or bigotry everyone can come in there everyone is welcome and i've literally i have every type of clientele from the da to freaking hardened criminals they're all come to the shop and i like it that way your shop is also you know not only is it a standout because of the culture inside your shop the service level like you're you're not a cheap barbershop you're not a five dollar haircut barbershop and i don't think anybody walks into your shop and expects that the the random person probably does but that's not your customer right. but you have managed to to go from being what i would classify as just a barber to you've built your own brand and you you charge a premium for a premium service and and the the community is willing to support that because for multiple reasons one you know you get what you pay for and you deliver a good service but also you're a part of that community and that you know all those things have to happen in order for you to just if you were just from out of town and had opened up that shop and it was as it is today i don't think you would get the support that you would get that you get right now when i first opened up you know i just went off the the prices that everyone else was charging and i studied and kind of tried to stay look at read articles in the industry not just barbering but the service service industries and what as general and i realized like and i i always hated raising my prices but i go now i go by the 80 percent capacity rule to where if i have a ass in my chair 80 percent of the time consistently then it's time to go up in prices because if I stay at that 80% or more and never go up, then I've eventually I start making less money. And I don't try to gouge anyone. I try to keep up with, and I kind of base it off. I keep up with, you know, the medium income in the area that I'm in. And because I, don't want to price myself out of your regular blue collar guy. That's, I don't want to, when guys come in and this dude swings a hammer for a living and he brings his two sons in with me, I know this dude worked his ass off to be able to come see me to pay what I ask. So I'm mindful of that and I make sure I bust my ass that he gets, no matter whose chair he sits in, he gets a great service. Him and his sons have a great time here and they have more than a haircut because there, there's plenty of guys that cut hair way better than I do that charge less than I do. But a dude comes in and sits in my chair. He has my undivided attention and I'm going to do the best job I can on his hair. And if he wants to talk, he's booked 30 minutes of my time and he has something he needs to get off his chest and we need to have a conversation. There's been times that I've cut my clippers off or set my scissors down, turn the chair around. And we spent that little bit of time and go, what you got, man? And we talk because there's more, so much more goes into barbering or the service industries than just cutting hair. There's more to it. So now you've been at it for almost two decades, man. We're getting old, brother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but how has your life changed, man? How, what's your life like today versus where it was when you were still at the fire department? I had the mindset when I was, 
when I worked a job, that's all I'm doing is I'm working a job. And this guy is going to give me, if he seems I'm deems me worthy, he's going to cut me a check. And when I decided to open a business, I realized just that mindset has to change. No one takes care of my retirement. No one pays me vacation. I don't get sick leave. So I adopted this really rigid, hardcore sense of personal accountability and responsibility to where going into this thing, and one of the reasons I think it worked is because, you know what, I told myself, if this damn thing works, I did it. And you know what, if this damn boat sinks, it's on you. And that kind of carried over into all aspects of my life. You know what, if I'm not, if I don't have the relationship with my sons that I think I should have, it's on me to fix it. It's my responsibility. You know, I want to buy a house or I want this, I want these things. I need to fix it. I'm in a relationship with someone and I don't feel like I'm getting what I need out of it. Either I fix it or it's my responsibility to move on. But don't sit around and bitch about what you don't have or where you're not at. It's on you. And I wish I would have adopted this mindset hell, when I just worked a job because whether or not you're on a business or you punch a clock, ultimately you're self-employed. You're trading your time, your skills, your ability, your talent in turn for a check. You're, you're essentially self-employed in that route. You need to look at yourself as a, a business, whether or not you own a business or just work for someone. That's been the biggest change in my life that's been the biggest blessing is that personal accountability that I take for myself and where I'm at. If I want something, you know what? It's on me to get it. And if I don't, if I fail or if I don't, I've learned, you know what? You didn't make it. It's on you. But what we learned? Let's do it again. Being self-employed as far as the relationship and being a father, man. I control my time. One of the biggest things I learned is I coached my son's football team when he first started playing years ago, the first time he played. The funny thing is, I don't know shit about football, but they needed help. They needed a coach. And you know what? For the first time in almost 20 years, I had like, I'm free at night. Hell yeah, I'll help coach. I got to do those things. and I got to be a part of my son's life. And if there's something that I want to be there for it's just a matter of me blocking off time going yep I'll be there buddy we're there yeah and I, I gotta imagine that's you know improved the relationship with the boys but also just improved your mental health as well dude I was, I sleep at night I never forget man when I first left the fire department that first Thursday night I laid down in bed I was getting all cozy and then for whatever reason, it popped in my head, direct deposit, not going to happen anymore. And that was the worst night of sleep I ever got in my life. And it was just terrifying because from here on out, there's not a check that shows up in my bank account Friday morning. If I, if I make it, and I remember counting out the cash at the end of the week and looking at it and just in amazement, that little bit of money, like, but that satisfying feeling of, you know what? I literally made this money. I made it. And once I got that in my head and realized that I can make money if I put the work in, because I'm not 
a business savvy dude at all, but I can work. And you'll be hard pressed to be able to, you won't outwork me. That feeling of knowing as long as I, that mental stability, I guess, and fortitude knowing, with that knowing the future is in my hands, I can control it. It's the best sleep ever. When I go to bed at night knowing I can control my own destiny is, well, you know, I mean, every entrepreneur's had this moment in their time going, you know what? I can control my destiny. I can make this whatever I want it to be. Well, man, if you could go back and tell Brian, the guy that started that barbershop all those years ago, one thing, what, what would you tell him? Really? It sounds kind of just overly simple, stupid. Just let it be, do your thing, work your ass off. Like you all know you're going to do, but then once you've done that, breathe don't don't sit there and grind your teeth and grind on things you can't control you know you've done your job you've done everything you can and once you reach that point relax breathe and let it be what it is if you want to learn more about brian and made man barber and shave you can find them on instagram at made man barber and that is at made man barber and and you can also find them on Facebook at Made Man and you can also find them on Facebook at Made Man Barber and Shave. Thanks a lot. Look forward to seeing you next week.